Welcome back, everybody. It's Chris Watson. Uh, this interview, too, here at Discovering What's Inside. Interviewed a very, very special guest, Shaka Senghor. Uh, his story is one that you don't normally get to hear, and I'm so excited to bring this story to you. All I can say is that you're in for a treat. I uh, met Shaka, actually, online. I saw some of the work that he was doing here in Detroit in the community. And once I read his story, I knew he was the first person I really wanted to have on the show and uh, through email correspondence, he saw the vision for the show and agreed to be on it. So I definitely appreciate that. And I can't wait for you to take a listen, hear his story. I know this will inspire you. His turnaround story is one that truly could be on a movie and books and all over the world. So take care, enjoy, be inspired, and let's discover what's inside. Let's go. Another episode of Discovering What's Inside. We have a very, very special guest. I'm excited about this. Uh, the, the way I came across our guest for today, name is Shaka Senor. Um, a friend of mine gave me a magazine at school. Everyone knows I'm a teacher by now. And I'm looking through this magazine. It's a Metro Detroit education magazine. And they had this story where they were highlighting Shaka. And I read this his story, which he, we're going to get into this today. So I don't even want to tell you all about it just yet. But when I read it, this is like the first person who I said needs to be on the show. Because at this time, it was just an idea. And as fate would have it, I was able to connect with him. Super cool guy, doing some awesome work. Agreed to be on the show. So, Shaka, thank you for taking the time to be here today. How you feeling, man? I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, thank you for welcoming me to the show. And congrats on getting the show started and off the ground. Thanks, man. You know, it's, it's always what they say. You know, getting something off the ground is the hardest part. So hopefully things will be easier here on out. Took a lot of development, but but you're right. We're here, man, and I appreciate it. I want to just get into a little bit about what you're doing. Uh, Shaka is a national and international, because I know you got people around the world watching you, speaker, activist, author, doing some awesome work. And he was recently actually did a TED Talk, and, you know, like the actual TED not just the TEDx or anything, that TED Talk on why your worst deeds don't define you. And we're going to get into all of that. But before we do, I want to hand over to Shaka. So let the let the listeners know, who is Shaka Singor and how did you get to this very point? Hmm. Uh, that's always an interesting question uh, because I wear you know a, a lot of hats. Uh, most importantly, the hat of being a, a father to you know three amazing children, uh, the youngest being two and a half. Um, but... You know, I, I I guess I live in a space where I try not to really define who I am. I just try to live my life through my work and and, and the impact that I have on on my you know community. Um, I, I guess because largely because at the core of who we all are is our humanity. We're just human beings who happen to do you know different things through life and hopefully impact other human beings. But in terms of just uh, the more narrow definitions, uh, I am. Uh, national outreach representative for an amazing organization called Be Me, uh, which you know stands for Black Male Engagement, um, and and through that work we in, we help build prosperous uh, cities and, and prosperous and inspired cities in Detroit, Philadelphia, 
Baltimore and soon to be uh, Pittsburgh. I also teach at the University of Michigan, a class called the Atonement Project, which is, you know, by far one of my most um, interesting experiences, but very humbling experience and and really something that I'm uh, really excited to be a part of. And then, you know, I do work with uh, at-risk men, young men and women who I'm trying to keep off the path that I took so many years ago in my teens, uh, like many other young men and women in our community. I grew up in, 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 in you know, what, what, what wasn't the most favorable conditions in the household. You know, I decided to run away and got seduced into street culture at an early age, uh, 14 years old. Uh, this was during the beginning of the crack epidemic. And within the first six months, you know, I experienced, you know, some of the most horrific and tragic things a child can encounter uh, from childhood friend being murdered to myself being beat nearly to death and left for dead in a, a crack house. Um, and then three years later, I was shot multiple times. And after I got shot, you know, I went to the hospital, they passed me up and pretty much sent me back to the hood, which is the story of so many young men and women in our community. And, you know, at no point did anybody offer me a hug, you know, say that I'm sorry this happened to you, offer me an opportunity to get counseling. And so at that time, I didn't realize that I was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, And so I began to carry a gun every day. And 14 months later, I got into a similar conflict and I fired the shots that caused the man's death. Uh, I was subsequently apprehended, you know, went to court and was sentenced to 17 to 40 years in prison uh, and ended up serving a total of 19 years. I was released uh, June the 22nd, 2010 after, you know, serving half of my life in prison. Wow. Wow. Now, and I'm so excited about this interview because your story, it's such a story of redemption and, and that's what's so unique about it because you went through some very traumatic events and all too often the the people who I know especially, you know, we're from the same city. Right. I, the people I know who, who go down that route, they don't end it the way your story and your story's not over, but they don't go down this other they don't see this light at the end of the tunnel that you've discovered. And I think that's what's so unique because you have such a a perspective that you can offer to the people that you speak to, whether it's kids like at my school or, you know, the, the college students or the, just the young men who may be in similar situations, you can offer them something that, you know, I can't offer because I didn't, I didn't have those experiences. And it's so, it's so good to you doing something positive with it. And that's why I'm so excited about this interview because there's not a lot of people that I know who can tell this story that like you can. So let's get into it. Let's, let's just start. Because I know um, you said in 14, you know, you, you yes. got introduced to the, the street culture. What what led you to that? Actually, you know, I, I had ran away from home. And uh, for the first couple of weeks, you know, I, I was, you know, staying in friends' basements, garages, didn't have nowhere to go, could barely, you know, feed myself. And, you know, when you're, when you're young, you know, you're very naive about how the world works and you think that, you know, somebody will see you suffering and they'll take you in and they'll love you and nourish you and all the things we crave as, you know, as, as young people. We just want to be loved and accepted. And what happens is that older, more seasoned hustlers, they see this vulnerability and they exploit that um, within our kids by, 
you know, offering them those things or the, or the, the semblance of those things, um, which comes in the, in, in, in the form of material possessions, you know. So uh, one of the older guys, he saw me struggling, and he was like, look, man, I got a place where you can stay. You know, you can make this money. You'll be able to feed yourself. You'll be able to dress. And at this point, like, we had no idea how devastating crack cocaine would be in our community. Uh, wow. And, and even the people who was, was using the drug at, this, at that time, they didn't even have any idea. I mean, these were, um, you know, these were, were lawyers, doctors, and, and, you know, dentists and school teachers. You know, it was, it was kind of a glamorous drug at that point. And, wow. I mean, really within the first six months, we just began to see the devastating effects. And at that point, you know, I was already in and it wasn't that easy to get out. Gotcha. Gotcha. And talk about, and, 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 and I don't, you know, I'm not going to dwell on this so long cause I'm sure you've told this story a million times, but for the people who may not have a glimpse, we have, we have a ton of, you know, a diverse audience here. Um, you said someone, someone tried to murder you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the cost of, the cost of, of, of life in the streets are very, is very cheap. Like nobody really has a, high regard in what you're dealing with. You're dealing with a bunch of hurt people who in turn hurt other people. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And it just creates this vicious cycle. So, you know, it was a it was a minor conflict that, you know, escalated rapidly to me being shot multiple times uh, over something that could have easily been resolved by one of us walking away. And the thing is that it, it triggered something in me to where I began to think that, like, you know, if I get into a similar conflict, I'm going to shoot first as opposed to being shot. And it's that thinking that keeps the cycle of violence going in our community. Um, and, you know, largely because there's just such a, a low regard for human life because you have so many people who are hurting. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that 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 just makes me think of some of the stories we've seen on the news recently, man. And it's just so devastating, some of the things we've been seeing just here in Detroit, Chicago, and really you know, all over in a lot of the urban areas around this country has been devastating. Some of the things uh, just heinous. And like I said, just, just low regard for the cost of life. What, what does that do to you now when you see that kind of stuff out? I know it probably fuels your work, but when you, if you turn to the news and you see a guy shoots a two year old over uh, a problem with her dad, or, you know, some of these things that we've seen currently, what does that do for you as someone who, you know, you've been on that side where you've seen some of that stuff in the streets and how it is, and you see it now. What does that do for you? Uh, it's hard. It's it's heartbreaking. You know, it's heartbreaking because I feel like we have the tools at our disposal to remedy some of these problems, and you know, it angers me uh, because we have politicians who refuse to invest in uh, men and women who you know are fully capable of of making a difference. You know. Um, and, and that's one of the one of the most troubling things about it. You know, when I when I saw the story, you know, I have a two year old, and you know, while I while I believe in redemption, um, and I and I and I understand like the pathologies, like that's part of the problems that we you know we can we can look at the crime singularly, but that doesn't solve anything. You know, we have to look at the pathologies that produce the environment and the culture of violence that we see every day playing out in our community and we haven't addressed those core, you know, core issues. Mm, um, yes. Yes. And we haven't partnered the right people. Like I believe, you know, the value that teachers and educators and, you know, everyday men and women, you know, who work 
add to the community, like their value is, is amplified when you partner them with somebody who comes from the street and who understands that culture, uh, because then we can deliver a message that really resonates on both levels. And uh, so it's hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, you know, I know what's going to happen when, when that young man goes to prison. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we live in a society where them offering, obviously, that's, that's a mental illness, you know, to shoot a child like that's some pathological behaviors that's rooted deep in the psyche, you know. Um, but when he gets to prison, you know, the guys that's been in prison, you know, they're not going to deal with him favorably. And, you know, it's just sad all around, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. It's sad. And I, I, I think you hit a, a good point right on the top of the head. It's people, and, and I deal with this as a, as a teacher, you know, it's easy to look at a school or a certain demographic and you say, oh, well, certain people are not achieving, right? right. But there's more than just like, oh, one thing to blame. It's a, it's a big system at place. And I think until, like you said, that we can really bring together these different groups that all play a part in building the community, we won't see by large a big change in the outcomes and, you know, some of the lives that a lot of our people are living in these areas. So, um, and that's and that's that's one of the things that, that fuels me as an educator, man. It's like trying to find that secret, that solution, and trying to find the right people that can help put things in place to to get to that solution. You know, that was actually one of the inspirations for this show. I feel like in a small part, it, it can help get toward that. And there's a, there's so much more that we need to do. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm a firm believer. I've you know I've been blessed with the opportunity to work with a couple of. High schools in Detroit, uh, Cody High School, uh, Tri-County, in, which is in Southfield, where most of the students come from Detroit. And, I mean, honestly, the thing that, you know, uh, bothers me the most is that we've been so dependent on somebody else to change our reality mm-hmm. uh, when we're fully capable of changing it ourselves. And I think that we have to reframe what education is and think in a more holistic way. Uh, as opposed to focusing so much on standardized tests because standardized tests can't account for abuse in the home or gun violence on the block. Uh, it can't account for, you know, the inferiority complex that so many of our kids uh, deal with. And so those are, those are things that we have to educate around and uh, address in a, in, a, in a real way. Gotcha, gotcha. Man, you're such, you got a lot of knowledge. <laughs> so let's go, let's go back in the story a little bit to a situation occurred, um, where you actually fire shots that led to someone's death. Right. Now we don't necessarily have to get into the, the circumstances surrounding that. Cause it's not really that important to me right now, but obviously you went to prison and tell us about how that was starting off. Cause I know things changed after a while, but how was it just going into prison? So maybe, cause this may get to somebody who, who's living that life. Right. What is prison life like? Yeah, but actually I want to, I want to, I want to address the, the issue of the, of the, uh, of the actual murder. Cause I think okay. this, this is important. And, and okay, cool. And it, you know, and, and, a, and a lot of times it's hard to have these discussions because, you know, it's, it's a very mostly touchy subject. Right. However, I think that, it's highly important that people understand why these things keep occurring in our community. Okay. And so after I got shot, um, and you know, I never received any type of counseling or anything of that nature. And so I responded based on the stimulus of my environment and the, the feeling of this can potentially, cause I got shot over something that, you know, like I say, literally was just a superficial argument. And so I reacted to that stimulus in my environment. And I began to carry a gun every day. 
And it's by far one of the one of the worst decisions I can make at that age. You know, I was roughly 17, going on 18 or whatever. Um, and then, you know, so when I got into a conflict, the only thing that I thought about was I need to shoot him before he shoots me. And it is by far one of the hardest decisions I've ever made in my life. Um, you know, it's something that I deal with, you know, 20 plus years later, and it's something that never goes away. So I always caution young men and women who think that it's okay to carry a gun, that if you make that decision and you end up causing somebody's death, it's something you're going to have to live with for the rest of your life. And it in turn, it becomes a life sentence because no matter what, you know, I, uh, I've accomplished in life, that's something that will always haunt me. And, and it's always going to be a part of my journey. Um, and you know, just, you know, if you take something from somebody, you can, you can go replace it. If I steal the tires off your car, you know, I can, I can, I can pay that back, you know, but you can't replace a life. Yeah. And so, you know, when I, when I walked into prison, I was, you know, very bitter. I was angry. I was emotionally confused. Um, because that wasn't the life plan that I had for myself. Like that wasn't the vision I had of myself of spending my most promising years in prison or, you know, being the cause of so much hurt for another family. Um, you know, for people that know me growing up in the community, like even though I sold drugs and I got caught up in that culture, you know, anybody that's ever known me always, you know, knew that I had a very given heart and I was just that, you know, that was the type of person I was. Yeah, and so yeah. to, to, to know that I was capable of causing somebody else so much pain when all of my life I've tried to do is avoid pain, you know, that, was, that, that, you know, caused a lot of emotional turmoil. And so when I got into prison, you know, I got into every type of imaginable trouble you can think of. Um, I accumulated what's called, in prison when you get in trouble, they write what's called a misconduct. Uh, I accumulated over 25 in my first five years in prison, which is very high uh, for, you know, that environment. I actually ended up in maximum security within the first year of my incarceration. Um, and, you know, I was in and out of solitary confinement. But during this process, I ended up, you know, encountering, you know, another inmate who, you know, offered me uh, a book to read that he, would ha he had actually written. And once I got that book, you know, he, he introduced me to other authors. You know, I, I read Donald Goins, um, who was actually a Detroit author, you know, come from the streets of Detroit, did time in prison. Uh, he's probably one of the most successful sellers, you know, uh, booksellers, you know, that most people don't know of. But, wow. you know, I ran into his work. And it just opened up a whole new world of black literature to me. And, you know, once I read Malcolm X's autobiography, I knew that I had to do something to uh, turn my life around. Wow. Wow. That's powerful, man. That's powerful. And that's that's such a such a traumatic change. I mean, because obviously your state of mind, I'm sure, had to be very unstable at that first part. You know, if you if you in prison, I mean. You, I heard you say this in the in the previous speech. You said they called you the worst of the worst. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, I, I, as I said, I got into every type of trouble. Uh, the prison that I first went to was Michigan Reformatory. Uh, we called it the Gladiator School because it's pretty much young guys going to war with each other every day. And um, and I made it up early in my mind, like you know, you have two options when you go to prison: whether you're going to be a lion or whether you're going to be a sheep. And uh, I made it up, you know, the first day I stepped on the yard that I was going to be a lion. And, you know, that means that you have to be willing to defend whatever views you have of life, whether it's against inmates, it's against guards. Um, 
and you know you have to stand firm in what you believe and people will respect that and you know and it allows you to move through your um incarceration you know without being somebody's victim so you know that was that was a path I chose, and and you know, and it got me into a lot of trouble because I, you know, I I, I rebelled across the board. Like I didn't make a difference whether you was an inmate or or a correction officer. If I felt like you, you know, did something that violated the principles, and, you know, and views I had, then you know, I responded in a manner that I felt was just, and you know, it got me in a lot of trouble. Um, but as you know, as I said, once I read Malcolm, that kind of began be, became. Uh, my companion in a way, you know, Malcolm mm. kind of, you know, mm-hmm. journeyed with me. And, you know, so I used to have these kind of what would Malcolm do moments where, you know, it's the joint is a tough place to be morally upright. Um, you know, you're expected to respond and if somebody owes you money, you're expected to respond to a certain manner. Otherwise, you end up being somebody's victim. And so I struggled, you know, I struggled with making that transition, but I realized in hindsight that that was part of what growth demands of you. It demands that you struggle and it challenges you and it challenges your character and it challenges your views. Um, and, and, it, and it's going to put you to the test and you have to, you know, you're going to rise or sink. And, you know, I was capable of overcoming after, you know, extensive periods of incarceration. I love it, man. I love it. And, you know, Malcolm X has, that's always been my, like my hero in a sense, because that's probably my favorite person from history uh yeah. when i first my dad is a prolific reader so when i was younger he would read this book you know the autobiography of michael max he would read it you know you know every, you know more than once i've seen him read this book so a right. few different times i've seen him read it and he would watch the movie and the movie was so long this when i was a kid you know <laughs> right, like, right. you know like the movie is so long so it wasn't really man until i think i was in I had seen the movie just, you know, watching my dad watch it. But when I got to college, man, this was like my freshman year. I think I sat down and just watched the whole thing. And I was just, I felt like my life was changed. And from there, I actually started just doing a ton of research on Malcolm X. And there's actually this website, um, you, you may know about it, but I think it's called the Malcolm X Files, where they had like, man, hours and hours of, like his actual speeches. Uh-huh. And if if you don't have it, man, I will send you the resource so you can get it. Up. But I'm talking like, man, hours of his speeches, um, videos. It, I mean, dude, it, it was incredible. And I still look back at that sometimes. I would, this, and I'm getting away off subject, but I was, uh, my college, I've worked as a custodian. Mm-hmm. And I would, because um, I'm cleaning, and that was a, a good job. Cause I, I get to, I, I got to think and listen to things. I would like, listen to those speeches, man, like as I would just clean. And it was just, you know, life changing. So, you know, Malcolm X, man, that that's that's my guy. I love Malcolm X. Yeah. And, um, I'm going to send you that those resources, though, because, I mean, you will love it, man. Just, I mean, because reading a book, watching a movie is one thing, but hearing actual words. Right. And so, so much of the stuff he's talked about then is stuff that we, our people, we still need to know now. Yeah. You know, definitely. in the present, in the present. So, yeah. I, I'm going to send that to you. So, let's, let's talk about. Um, the transformation like that that exact do you remember the exact moment in time where you decided you were going to make a change you know it it, it was no real specific moment right because it was kind of like this gradual process uh as i said Mal, you know malcolm's words became kind of like my companion but you know i i went through several iterations of of transformation you know from from 
joining a religious organization, you know, that, that helped me cultivate a sense of spiritual responsibility uh, and, and, and spiritual fortitude to, you know, informal study groups with other inmates, you know, around political science and things like that. And so it was just, it was, it was kind of like this growing process. And I think what, what the tipping point was, uh, uh, in 1999, I got into an altercation with a with a, a corrections officer, and mind you, there in prison in Michigan, there's a lot of racial tension between, uh, you know, largely rural white males officers and you know inner city black kid convicts. And um, this one particular officer, he had a penchant for putting his hands on inmates in an inappropriate manner, and most of them didn't respond you know, the way that I responded because they wanted to go home and, 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 you know, and they knew that they would compromise their freedom where I, on the other hand, wanted to live with a sense of dignity and pride and, and respect for my humanity. And I just refused to allow anybody to trample on that. So he, when he put his hands on me in an inappropriate manner, I responded, you know, the, you know, in a manner to let him know that it was unacceptable. And, um, I was, I ended up being sentenced to an additional two years in prison for assault on staff and ended up serving four and a half years straight in solitary confinement. And it was while I was in that environment that I got a letter from my son, uh, just talking about, you know, how, why I was in prison. And like, that was just, it was heartbreaking, but it also was liberating in the sense that, you know, all of the hood toughness, all the prison savvy, you know, that just crumbled to the ground when I realized, you know, that my child was looking at me as this monster. And I, you know, I, be, I, I, I was like, you know, I declared that moment that, you know, um, I would live my life in such a way that no matter where I'm at, that my son would be able to look up to me, and realize that I am a, I'm a, I'm a man. You know, I'm a man of substance. I'm a man of character. Um, and you know, that's when I began to do the hard work, which was getting to the root cause of how I ended up there in the first place. And so I started journaling and taking my back myself back through some of the things that I had never addressed uh, in my life. And, and that's how I got to where I was in terms of the full transformation. Gotcha. Gotcha. Did you ever in any moment uh, in prison or in your life in general, did you ever think that you would be a speaker and author and someone who was going to go back and leave a, a footprint on the world and in your own community in such a positive way? You know, I, you know, it's, it's interesting that, uh, when I began this journey of self-discovery and transformation, one of the things I had to do was identify what skill sets do I have that can make a difference, uh, in the, in the world. Um, and so, you know, I, I began to just like think about things and I knew literature had had such a profound impact on my life. Uh, and, and, you know, I've read over 1500 books on probably every subject you could think of. Wow. And, you know, and so I was like, that's, that inspired me to start writing because I feel like my, 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 the inspiration was if literature can do this for me, then I can only imagine what it can do to a kid whose mind is still impressionable and fertile enough to grow new ideas and thoughts. And so mm. I started writing fiction that I called conscious street lit. And the idea behind it was that I wanted to write street lit because I knew that appealed to young people. Um, at this time, this was when, you know, the coldest winter ever was out and all these, you know, fly girl and all these books that was appealing to, you know, young urban uh, yeah, teenagers yeah. and young adults. And so I, I started writing socially conscious street lit. 
and that's that's where I began. And then with the speaking part, uh, I, you know, I had I had did you know some speaking inside prison to you know the other inmates and things like that. But I never, in my wildest imagination, uh, thought that I would ever be on a stage getting a standing ovation at TED. Like that was an incredible experience. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm just really excited that I had that opportunity to share my voice with the world. And you know, yep. yeah, yeah, that's. That's amazing, and you know the the way you talk about literature, uh, I I definitely understand, especially because myself, I really ultimately want to be just a speaker. That's why I'm doing this. Like I love just talking to people. I love mm-hmm. the potential that a message can have on somebody. Because just like you said with literature, I've heard certain speeches and certain I've heard certain presentations that have just had such a profound impact. And for me, it was just like you know what, if I can, I know what certain people did for my life right. you know and if i can go back and have like even a little bit of that impact on somebody else then i'm doing something great you know and i'm doing right. something meaningful so that like that same type of thinking led me to want to really get into speaking and doing these type of uh you know projects where i'm bringing the messages to people because i know what a, a good message does for me and i was, I was that was my inspiration for wanting to bring it to somebody else so i definitely understand that yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, words words are powerful, and you know, when you when we're blessed with these gifts and these opportunities, I think it's important that we share them because you never know what you can say that can, can impact a person's life. And I've I've heard some of uh, you know some of Malcolm's talks and you know a few other people who I hold in high regard that were so inspirational when I was incarcerated that I was like, there's no way I'm going back to the street culture and, and cause any more devastation to my family to my community, uh, and to the families of others. And, and so those talks just really inspired me. And, you know, and I, it's not like I, I didn't believe in everything that the speaker was talking about, but those bits and pieces that resonated with me yeah. stuck with me for real. So um, yeah. it's an honor to be able to do the work that I do. Okay. And and let's, let's jump to, and if, if I'm skipping over anything important in prison, I want you to go back to it, but the day when you found out that you're, you know, you're going home and what is that like leaving prison? What is that like? Oh uh, man, that was, that was, it was the most surreal. I mean, honestly, when you've lived almost two decades in prison, um, it's hard to even imagine that you're ever going to get out of that place. And all the way up until the last moment, I was just like, at some point they're going to tell me that they made a mistake. And I just, I just didn't believe that they were actually letting me out. Um, that, and the, and the funny thing is, like, so the day before I got out of prison was my actual birthday. It was wow. my 38th birthday. So at that point, I had spent half my life in prison, half my life out. Um, and, you know, so I, I spent that last day on a visit with my fiance. And it was just really deep because, you know, it was like, okay, it's real now. You know, you'll be walking out tomorrow for the first time after nearly 20 years, and, and life is going to change for you. And so. You know, when I when I stepped out that first time, the first thing I did is just took a deep breath and just inhaled free air um, and inhaled the feeling of not having handcuffs and shackles on. And then it was like it's time to get get down to work, you know. And 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 that the level of urgency I felt was because I had missed out on 20 years of uh, transformation in terms of culture, technology, and so. <laughs> right. I'm literally was playing catch up, you know, and um, 
you know, and, it, and it's overwhelming. And, and I talk to people about this all the time because we're dealing with so many men and women who are struggling with returning back to prison and things of that nature. And it's largely because they're not preparing you for the complete shift that the world has taken while you were away. And I think that's such an injustice, you know, uh, and you have to learn so much and, 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 you know, had to set up emails, get your driver's license, learn, you know, computer technology, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, unfortunately, I was able to excel at those things, but it was very stressful. Uh, there was sometimes, you know, trying to get a job. You know, I started off um, putting in, you know, resumes, applications and, and, you know, and just getting rejected because of the felony, you know. It's devastating. So, um, yeah, yeah, very difficult transition. But you know, I was thankful that I had you know people who believed in me and, and they saw my work ethic and were willing to give me an opportunity. And my first opportunity came through the Michigan Citizen writing for their um, arts and culture section, and then the Citizen Speaks, and you know, and then like I said, I, I got you know uh, the founder of, of Black Male Engagement, uh, Travian Shorters. Uh, he saw value in the work that I was doing and, and gave me an opportunity to work for the company. And, you know, it's something that, you know, I'll, I'll forever cherish. And I think that's all it takes. You know, if you give people a chance that really want it, you know, they'll, they'll excel. Nobody's going to outwork me. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so that, you know, it's just it's all about giving people chances. Absolutely. Absolutely. So few, few points I want to hit on. I know where, uh, you know, I'm holding you a little bit long here. So I want to, be strategic in what I ask so I can get the most out of it. Yeah. Um, let's, you mentioned this a little bit briefly, but who are some of the people who you appreciate most? Who helped you? Like, you know, or, you know, and maybe you've told people this a million times, oh, you no, know, thank you, but like, if you have to just say thank you to certain people, who would those people be? I know it's kind of a random question, but I like random yeah, questions no, like it's, that. No, it's cool. Uh, um, I mean, I've, I've, I've been you know, blessed with an amazing father. My father is, is my hero. Um, and you know, we, we've had, we've worked through a lot of things from the past and, and, that, and that's part of why I have such a high level of respect of him because as a man, you know, he was able to come to me and, you know, and talk about the areas where he felt like he failed me. And, you know, I was, I was able to absolve him of the responsibility of the decisions I made and, we, and we're best friends to this day. Um, and you know, for 19 years, he stood by my side, visited me at prisons all over the state, uh, ensured that I had a relationship with my older son and, you know, just did everything he could in, in a way that, you know, I've never witnessed, you know, from other guys who have, you know, who, who are locked up. And so, you know, by far, you know, he encouraged me to keep cultivating my mind and reading and, and you know, he always reminded me that, you know, they could take everything from me, but they couldn't take my knowledge and my intelligence and, you know, that it was important to cultivate those things. So I'm definitely most thankful for him. Uh, my fiance, Ebony Roberts, uh, we met in 2005, uh, became great friends in 2006, eventually got engaged. And, you know, now we have this wonderful, amazing two and a half year old. And, you know, she's been my rock for the last eight years. You know, um, she is, you know, a woman who went against the odds, you know, very accomplished woman. And, and you know, people was like, what are you doing with dating this guy in prison, et cetera? And she's never wavered in her commitment to me. Um, and she stood by my side every step of the way through every rejection from the parole board. And no matter where I was at, she came and saw me. And, you know, we just built an amazing friendship. And, you know, she's my business partner and, you know, definitely life partner, soulmate. And, 
Yeah, yeah. So those, those those are the two people, and then all my all my mentors in prison. You know, I still stay in contact with those guys, and um, you know, so I'm just thankful to have good people in my life. Gotcha. So we talked about the people important to you. Let's jump and talk about, uh, which I'm sure has been a, a highlight in your in your career, the TED Talk. You know, why your worst deeds don't define you. So talk a little bit about how that came about, because I would love to speak for TED, and it seems like they're very selective on who they, you know, pick. So congratulations. How did that come about? And what was your inspiration? And what did you want to get across with that speech? Uh, so Ted, <laughs> the journey of Ted is always interesting. Uh, <laughs> so, um, I, I have a fellowship with, uh, at MIT media lab and this fellowship came out of an experience. I had meeting the director, Joy Ito. Um, and once he heard my story and heard what I was about, you know, he offered me opportunity to be a fellow at MIT Media Lab. And when I uh, started at the MIT Media Lab, I ended up doing a talk there just about my work in the community and who I was, my journey. And so a few people started reaching out to Joy about me doing like TEDx talks and things like that. So I did TEDx Midwest, uh, which went over really well. Um, then shortly after that, I got invited to do TED, TEDx Youth San Diego. Uh, through, you know, connects through my friend Barry Tunde Thurston. And last year when we did our first retreat for our fellowship, I uh, got a chance to meet Joan Cohen from TED. And when she heard my story, she you know, was like, I really want you to be on the main TED stage. And so um, as they got ready to ramp up for the 30th year anniversary, you know, they had picked all their speakers. And so I didn't even I didn't even realize that you know I was going to have the opportunity because they had all the speakers picked and then one day I got this email from June and she was like you know I really want you to speak at TED this year um, and you know would you be open to doing it and of course I was like TED like, well you know I got to do it right so right uh, but you know I told her I was like well you know with the felony I may not be able to travel to Vancouver which is where they're hosting their you know TED events at now. Okay. And uh, she was like, well, don't worry about it. We're going to, you know, she's like, just start working on your talk as if you'll be here and we'll figure out, you know, how to get you here. And so we went through weeks of going back and forth with, you know, uh, people in Vancouver, with her staff, uh, with lawyers that, you know, Joy had, you know, uh, introduced me to. And it was like the most stressful thing because, you know, I really wanted to attend the conference and I just thought I wouldn't be able to get a chance to share my story. And, um, after about a month or so, you know, we just concluded that I, it wasn't going to happen, that I wasn't going to be able to, to wow, to okay, <laughs> Vancouver, and uh, and so while we were in conversation, I was like, well, how about live streaming the talk? You know, like I can do the talk from somewhere in Detroit, and you know, and actually it'll it'll reinforce the the, the point behind the talk. And they was like, let's do it, but they was like, you know, instead of that, we'll just you know fly you out to the TED office. So I actually did my talk in New York at the TED office and the stream live to Vancouver. Wow. Um, and tr- true to Murphy's law, everything that can go wrong went wrong. <laughs> so it was one of those kind of days. Yeah, yeah, man. But, hey, but you got it done, though. And, yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and you know, they they really wanted you, man. Like, that, that is cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's unbelie- it was an unbelievable experience. You know, I get to New York, and, and I – and so – the thing about Ted is like, you know, you have to perfect your talk and be prepared to deliver it without a yeah. problem. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's it's a it can be, 
you know, you're iterating on your th- your talk all the way up until the last minute. And that's what happened with me. Like literally the day before my talk, I didn't even know. <clears throat> I didn't even know the talk because I ended up make, making so many changes. And so I was up under the pressure of, you know, doing this talk without even, you know, knowing the talk that I was going to do. So the actual day, um, I felt like I had enough time. But to my surprise, they called me over to the office and was like, hey, we're going to do a dress rehearsal. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so they was like, okay, do your talk. And I'm like, well, I don't really know it right now. So they were all looking a little bit concerned. Uh, and I just freestyled some stuff for them just to make sure the feed to Vancouver was good. And then they came back and was like, you know, you're going to do a, a full walkthrough of your talk so we can record it in case they lose the feed. Uh, you know, they'll they'll get the talk. Oh, man. Right, right. Wow. <laughs> And so I literally drew a blank. Like I could not, I couldn't even think of my first line. Like I literally, my mind just completely shut down. It was overwhelmed from the pressure and, and just, you know, going through so many iterations and having so many people in my ear. And so I just had to kind of do some self-motivation, made self-motivational talking uh, and get back to what I would have done if it would have been one of my students. What would I have told them? And I was like, trust your own process. Like tell your story the way that you know how to tell your story, not how other people may think you want to tell it. And, you know, and so I went in, meditated for a minute, came back out. It was game time. Uh, they put the earpiece in and 30 seconds into my talk, the earpiece went to straight static. Wow. So the first eight minutes of my talk is like all static in my ear, but nobody really knew that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is crazy. Like, yeah. So I'm like, I just got to deliver. Um, but I mean, it was fun. It was exciting. It was stressful. You know, I'm. I'm it's, it's one of my proudest accomplishments. You know, the talk is almost at six hundred thousand views in just a little over a month. Um, and it, you know, it's very humbling. The, the feedback I've got from people just has been so positive. And you know, from victims of violent crime, violent offenders, you know, the whole spectrum. Like people have reached out to me through my website, and you know, just hearing all their, you know, the way that they've responded and the story has touched you know, different parts of who they are made it all worthwhile. Yeah, and I think and I think that's great for Ted to even give you that that stage because when you're up there, you're not just speaking for just you. You know, you're speaking for a lot of people who've experienced what you went through because yeah. so all too often, oh, you know, you're you you know, convict, you no one wants to hear from you or you don't have anything valuable to say. So you're speaking for a lot of people right. and like you say, you're not just speaking for um, people on your end, but also for victims. I think your story can help a lot of people bring peace to those kind of types of situations and help restore pain and help see the human side of, of everyone. You know, that's what, like you said at the beginning, that's what we well, all are just humans at the end of the day. And it's like that impact and that, that what, what we last kind of defines us in a sense. But I think that that was really commendable, man. And that's, that that's an incredible accomplishment and the story behind it makes it that much sweeter. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it wasn't just like, oh, yeah, it was an easy day. I just walked, you know, flew to Ted out, you know. But the perseverance that was needed, this makes the story even that much more remarkable, even down to the earpiece. You know, I was just watching it again last night, and I had no idea. I was wondering, like, what's what's in those earpieces? What do did, what did they, you know, have going through there? Like, what do you, what do they normally have? But right yeah that's incredible man yeah and, and, and the earpiece was basically for me to be able to hear the live feed from vancouver um and so we just lost all that but you know i, I freestyled and just you know went through it and um that was that 
Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Well, I, I definitely want to thank you for your time. You know, before we go, I just want to know what what can we expect from you in the future? What are you some current things you're working on? What's currently got you inspired? What's the current thing that you're trying to get done? Yeah, I'm I'm currently trying to uh, actually in the process of working with with a few amazing people to uh, start a company that helps men and women make a successful transition back to society and enter the workforce in the areas of coding and uh, filmmaking and, and things along those lines. So I'm working with some great people out of New York. Um, and then we're in the process of starting a nonprofit to help, you know, children with incarcerated parents and help with some of the, you know, the men and women that, with their transitional peace in society. So um, a lot of cool, exciting man. things coming up, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of pressure to, to do this stuff right, but definitely want to make sure, uh, you know, we, we pull it all together and, and, and make sure that these men and women, you know, have an opportunity to come home and reintegrate into society in a healthy way. Absolutely, absolutely. And I know soon you're going to be having a panel um, actually based around your TED Talk on, you know, why your worst things don't define you. you. Want to talk anything about that? What's, what can we expect? Yeah, I'm really excited about the panel because I think this will be a, a great community conversation. Uh, we're just waiting to confirm, you know, the, the location and the dates. Uh, but the idea behind this panel is to really get into some of the things about forgiveness, restorative justice, uh, health, healthy transitions back to the community, dealing with the juvenile life for law. And, uh, and I got some real surprises in the order that I, I think are going to be pretty dope. Um, but really want to ramp up this conversation around forgiveness and, and reintegration into society and uh, making sure that men and women have a chance to succeed. Excellent, man. Excellent. So, I just want to thank you. Uh, I, I can't wait for the listeners to hear this and get the feedback. We're going to make sure that, you know, we support the panel and everything you got going on. And, uh, you know, I just want to thank you for this time. Last thing before you go, if people want to find you today online or anywhere, where can they find you at? And uh, what's the best way to contact you? Uh, they can contact me at uh, com. Uh, all my social media is the same. Shaka Singor, you can find me on any social media outlet. Uh, you can call me directly, 313-720-5546. I respond to all my social media myself. I answer my phone myself. Uh, I'm still just an everyday brother that's just trying to make a difference. So I'm pretty accessible, you know, when, when, when men and women try to reach out to me. And um, so, yeah, but just check out my website. It'll keep you updated on any upcoming events we have and what's going on with, you know, anything new. Cool. Cool. We appreciate it. I hear your son in the background. He's probably like, daddy, come on, let's go have some fun. Let's go do something. So I just want to thank you for your time and, uh, you know, keep us up to date here, discovering what's inside. We're going to make sure we support you. We're going to put all the links where they can find you. I'm going to embed the Ted talk as well. People need to hear that. And, um, you know, anything we can do, man, just let us know. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Well, to the audience out there hope you enjoyed this week's show remember if you liked it go ahead and subscribe on itunes download us rank us find us on soundcloud the whole nine yards share us all that good stuff until next time take care and pursue your dreams passionately make the difference that you want to make getting out of here talk to you later all right peace